This was week number two in our study of the book of Daniel. Just getting started. And last week, you remember, we spent our time basically looking at the historical background of, uh, of the book of Daniel, where what was happening during the times in which he wrote this book. And you remember, we went all the way back until the time of Solomon, when Solomon died and the kingdom was split into two kingdoms. 931 was the date. And the kingdom was split into the northern and the southern. The northern being ten of the tribes, the southern being two of the tribes. And you'll remember that we talked about the northern kingdom actually set up their own center of worship apart from Jerusalem because Jerusalem was obviously in the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom comprised um, of the tribe of Judah, and with them would have been the Levites because they would have been administering in the temple. A little bit of the tribe of Benjamin was also involved with them, but ultimately when the ten tribes of the north are captured, Benjamin goes with them. And so it's really just Judah left in the southern kingdom. We talked about that the northern kingdom only lasted a little over a hundred years. In 722 they were captured by the Assyrians, completely ravaged taken off, deported from their own land, taken into foreign lands, and other people from those foreign lands brought in to live in their cities and to live in their land. Never again does the northern kingdom come back. There's no place in history, there's no place in the scriptures where the northern kingdom ever comes back to the land of the, of the north. And so, totally obliterated, gone after a little over 200 years. The southern kingdom fared a little better, but not a whole lot. They only lasted another 100 years. In 605 B.C., so from 931 to 605, they were a kingdom to themselves. They were the land of Judah. But as we saw last year in their last years, they became uh, really puppets of first uh, the Pharaoh out of Egypt, and then ultimately of the Babylonian kings, and ultimately captured by the Babylonian kings, taken into uh, the land of Babylonia. Uh, Their land totally decimated. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in, and over the series of three sieges, he um, not only took the people, all the people who were worth anything, he says that he left the poor people, um, but all of those who are of nobility or any uh, status he took to Babylon with him. And then ultimately on the third siege, they destroyed not only um, the temple, they burnt the temple from the in out, really. The Holy of Holies absolutely went up in flames. Um, and all the rest of the temple, but they also tore down all the walls of Jerusalem and, and burned all the gates. And so the city was left desolate. The big difference between the south and the north is that God, in the prophecies of Jeremiah, said that the south would only go into captivity for 70 years. And so that's the time of Daniel. The time of the writing of the book of Daniel is during the 70 years and just after the 70-year captivity. And we'll see that as we walk through the pages of Daniel. So ultimately, the time in which Daniel wrote is a time of desperation for the nation. They're not in their own land. They've been deported. They're slaves of the Babylonians. And um, their life is harsh. And even when they come back 
to the southern kingdom. It is not a good time. It's a very difficult time. Zerubbabel is the first one who comes back, uh, rebuilds or builds the second temple. If you hear people talk about second temple Judaism, that's what they're talking about, the time after Daniel wrote. And um, so and then ultimately over the course of you know, 500 years or so, they do come back, and that's where we find in the times of Christ um, that the Jews are, again, back in their land. They have a temple, but they didn't build it. Um, the, um, the rulers underneath Caesar's control built it, but at least they're operating. During this time of Daniel, there's no sacrifices. There's nothing going on. It's all bad. There's nothing good except for the prophecy of Jeremiah that they would only be there 70 years. And so that's kind of what we reviewed last week, went through and saw. Then this is the time in which Daniel um, is writing. It's the time in which he's living. It's the time in which the events that we'll look at as we walk through the pages of Daniel occur. Okay, When the Babylonian captivity is in full play. So we ended last week kind of looking at um, the... Uh, what the scripture says about Daniel and did he really write this book. Because there are many today who would say not only that Daniel didn't write this book, but that it was written hundreds of years after Daniel. Matter of fact, it was written four or five hundred years after Daniel because there's no way that Daniel could have, could have prophesied the things that he did with such excruciating accuracy. Especially when we get over to... Uh, to chapter 10 where there's over a hundred prophecies of what would happen in history that were perfectly fulfilled they you know the skeptics the liberals say there is no way that any of that could have been predicted before it happened it's actually someone writing in the last couple of hundred years uh, before Christ looking back on history instead of looking forward to it that we debunk we don't believe it um, if you believe that, then you, um, you get over to Matthew 24 and you look at the words of Christ looking back at Daniel. He clearly says that Daniel wrote these things um, and, and he even cites, you remember in Matthew 24, the abomination of desolation that Daniel wrote about. And that's kind of where we left off last week because your view of what Jesus Christ says in Matthew 24 will greatly influence, it will guide all of your eschatology. What you believe about that simple statement of what he says about Daniel will guide you in all of your eschatology. Okay, and, and let's look at a reason why that is. Look first at what Daniel wrote. We looked at this last week, but it's worth review. Look over at Daniel chapter 11. In verse 31, he actually first mentions the abomination of desolation back in chapter 9, where actually he doesn't mention it, Gabriel the angel does, Daniel wrote it down, but it's Gabriel the angel who's actually speaking. But over in Daniel chapter 11, in verse 31, it becomes very clear of what happens at the abomination of desolation. It says that forces from him will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. And then turn over to chapter 12 and see it right at the very end of the book. You'll see in chapter 12 and verse 11, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, 
and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now, we will talk about the 1,290 days far into the future if the Lord wills, right? So we're not going to talk about that today, but looking at the abomination of desolation, what, what is characteristic of it that Daniel is writing about here? What happens at the abomination of desolation? There's two things. All right, no question the temple is desecrated, but the first thing that happens is what? The regular sacrifices are abolished, right? Which means what has to be true? <coughs> that they're going on, right? And so there, if for the sacrifices of the uh, Jewish uh, religion to be going on, what then has to be true if you're going to be doing your sacrifices? There has to be a temple, right? Okay, so you got to have a temple. You've got other certain requirements like the ashes of the brown heifer from the year before before you can start sacrificing for the next year. There's, there's a lot of other liturgical things, but the basic facts are you got to have a temple, you got to have an altar, and you got to be sacrificing for this to take place, right? When it does take place, then the sacrifices cease and something else starts. And what is it? The abomination of desolation. Now, what does that mean? I mean, a lot of people point to the end times. There's a lot of people who don't point to the end times, and that's what I want to talk about. Because what you believe about what Jesus Christ said about the abomination of desolation will guide and lead your eschatology. It absolutely will. Because um, there are dominoes that begin to fall if you believe certain ways. And you, you can't have it both ways. Okay, there's some who try, and there's a, a new movement. You know, we never talked about it, but there's basically four views of eschatology. There is today, in our modern age, a fifth that's trying to blend all four. Okay, can't happen. Because they have different uh, presuppositions, they have different views of Scripture. You can't blend them. Okay, there are people who are trying to, but it doesn't work well. All right, so why would I say what you believe about what Jesus said about Daniel guides your eschatology? Why would I make such a statement? I mean, so what is happening in Matthew 24? What is, the, what is the chapter about? I mean, they asked Jesus a couple of questions, right? Right in the beginning of the chapter. What are they? You can see them there. Yeah, what are the signs of the end of the age or the end times, right? And so Christ, for a whole chapter, talks about that. Actually, the next chapter even talks about that. And so he answers their questions with um, a lot of predictions, a lot of imagery, a lot of events that happen, a lot of things that seem to be happening but aren't happening, and then instructions of what to do during that time. So this is, this is Christ's take on eschatology. This is him teaching, not with many people understanding, but this is his instruction concerning the end of the age, what's going to happen. Right? There are people who believe that the abomination of desolation that is written about in Daniel actually happened uh, in 167 B.C. Now, there's good reason for them to think about that. There, uh, there was a, a man, 
um, where there was the um, Alexander the Great, when he died, his kingdom was split into four kingdoms, right? right. One of those was the Seleucids. Right. They were based in Babylon. Right. They had a king in the around 175 or so BC named Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. Okay? Antiochus and the other Antiochuses before him, because he's the fourth, greatly expanded their kingdom. In 168 BC, he went into Egypt and into Cyprus to take them over. He miscalculated because he was met by the Romans because Rome was rising to power at that time. And so the Romans came to him and said, if you do not withdraw from Egypt and from Cyprus, we will declare war on you. And that would have been bad news. They would have been destroyed by the Romans. So this is actually one of the people that I, um, one of the references that I looked at said, you've heard of the saying, um, draw a line in the sand, right? Step across that line and you'll see what I do. This is where that arose from. The Roman envoy drew a circle around Antiochus as he was in Egypt and said, if you cross that circle without giving assurances that you will withdraw from Egypt and from Cyprus, Rome will declare war on you. And so that's drawing the line in the sand, right? And so Antiochus withdrew. But obviously, wanting to expand his kingdom, he was outraged. He was upset big time. And so if you take a trek from Egypt back to Babylon, you go right through Jerusalem. And so that's what he did. And in 167 B.C., Antiochus came into Jerusalem, and if you believe the writings of Josephus, Josephus says, in three days, 80,000 Jews were done away with. 40,000 were slaughtered. Another 40,000 were sold into slavery. They decimated the Jewish nation. They did more than that. They came in and they um, took over the temple, stopped the regular sacrifices. Antiochus declared that the temple was now the temple of Zeus and that they would sacrifice to Zeus on the altar that had been used to give the Jewish sacrifices. He sent also into all the land a decree that if anybody (coughs) tried to follow the Jewish religion, they would be slaughtered, and many were. You go to the city of Antioch and you look at the ancient writings about Antioch, they wiped out slews of Jewish people in Antioch. They went to other lands also, because at that time, they controlled all those lands, so they could do whatever they wanted to. Right? And so that, they, they stopped the regular sacrifices in 167, and they began to sacrifice to Zeus. And they did so for multiple years. Clearly an abomination before God and the stopping of the regular sacrifices. So there are many who would say that 
is what Daniel was writing about, the abomination of desolation, when Antiochus IV Epiphanes came in, stopped the regular sacrifices, and began to offer to Zeus on the altar of God abominations before God. Now, what's wrong with that theory? Jesus says that it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, when Jesus is speaking about the abomination of desolation that Daniel wrote about, he's talking about the end of the age which hasn't gotten there yet. He's talking about future events. So it's clear. This is the only hint you have in Scripture. It's not a hint. It's just blatantly there that Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 B.C. did not fulfill the abomination of desolation that Daniel was writing about. Jesus himself says that's not true. It may be a foreshadowing. It may be similar. It may look like the right thing, but it's not because of what Jesus said. All right, now, you go again back to Matthew 24 and you look at what Jesus is talking about and there would be some that would say that everything, almost everything that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24 took place in 70 AD when Rome overthrew Jerusalem. And Rome truly overthrew Jerusalem. They tore down the walls, they tore down the temple, they burned the temple again. Um, everything went up in flames. Okay, No temple left, no city left. Totally desolate. The problem with that is they didn't set up any abominations on the, on the altar. They didn't sacrifice anything. They burned it and leveled it. And the people, you remember, retreated to Masada and three years later ultimately committed most of the mass suicide as the Jews, came, I mean, as the Romans came in and decimated Masada. So they lasted for a little while, but not very long. And so the, the, the Romans did not set up any abominations. They just simply wiped out all the people. Now, the people who believe, or at least their writers who write about the people who believe, that that happened in 70 A.D. and that fulfilled everything that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, also believe that everything that John wrote about in Roman, in Revelation all the way up to chapter 20 and verse 7, all of that happened in 70 A.D. And that includes, by the way, if you look at chapter 20 and verse 4, the millennial reign of Christ that it has already happened and that the judgment on Israel in 70 AD fulfills all of that. Okay, now, I have some issues with that, right? Because if the millennial reign of Christ, and we call it the millennial reign, why? Because it says that Christ will reign for a thousand years. If that happened and was fulfilled in 70 AD, then what is true today? Well, first of all, the millennial reign is not a thousand years. It's a long period of time. That has to be your interpretation. And we're in it now. This is the millennial reign of Christ. And by the way, the Christian, the world is going to get better and better as the Christians take over so that they ultimately usher in chapter 20, verse 8, through the end of the book, 
which is the ultimate judgment and the destruction of this world and the creation of a new heavens and new earth and the new Jerusalem. All of that is yet future, but we're living in the millennial reign and the world is getting better and better as the Christians take it over to usher in the reign of Christ. I, I'm not making this up. Okay? I'm not making this up. This is what is taught and believed. And what you believe about what Christ said about Daniel and the abomination of desolation leads to all of this. It will guide your eschatology. It will take you down paths. That, think about this. What do you do with Romans chapter 11? where we've been grafted into Israel, right? We've been grafted into the tree. And it's just for a time that Israel is blinded, right? But then they'll understand. When is that? The fullness of the Gentiles. No, no, no. You. Go ahead, Andy. Well, our Lord, you know, it's funny, we talked last time, we talked about Matthew 24 a long time ago. We right. looked back into Matthew 23. Right. In the very end, there's a very important passage that our Lord gives us. And, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who are sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as hen gather her chick, chicks under her wings, but you would have none of it. Look, your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, at that point, right. In the, they're, they're about to ask him the question, right? It's all building up. For I tell you, you will not see me from now until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And that is Israel and right. the redemption that Paul talks about in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But to believe the eschatology that I've just explained to you, that 70 AD fulfilled all of it, how do you get around that? It's this way. You say that the church has replaced Israel as the people of God. It's no longer the nation of Israel. It's you. Now, it's true that we are the people of God, right? But nowhere in Scripture, people manipulate some and say, that they see right there? It says that he who... Um, is, not all the Jews are a Jew, right? If you go over to Romans and you look at chapter um, 2, the very first verse, that's what it says. Well, what he's talking about is not you and I becoming Jews, but about the Jews not acting like the people of God, not the other way around. So there, there's all kinds of schemes and all. What I, I, don't, I don't want to go into them. What I want to explain to you is what you believe about what Daniel wrote and what Jesus said about it guides you into all this eschatology. It leads you. Because if you believe that 70 AD fulfilled the, the writing or the, the prophecies of Christ, then you must believe that the church has replaced Israel. You have to. That there's no other answer to the rest of scriptures that are written about the nation of Israel. And so those who have that eschatology do believe that. That we are the church and we have replaced Israel as the people of God and that we will usher in as we take over the world with goodness the reign of Jesus Christ. Now I have a question for you. Christ in his prophecy about the end times, he compares them to what? A woman in labor. Does a woman in labor, does it get better and better as you go through labor? <laughs> Probably not, right? It gets worse and worse until the end. 
So it's not going to get better and better by the prophecy of Jesus Christ. It's going to get worse and worse. So you have to do mental gymnastics and take the scripture and make it say what you want it to, I believe, to have that eschatology. Now there are many, many, most true believers who have that eschatology. That's what they believe. So I would never deny their salvation. I would never deny their love for God. I would never deny they're in the kingdom of God. That I, I'm not up for that. I'm not in those debates. I don't care about those debates. But I don't believe what they believe. If you look at the doctrinal statement of Faith Community Church, what you'll see is that we believe the writings of Matthew 24 are yet future. We believe that all of Revelation is yet future. We would be put in the camp of futurists, right? We'd be put into the camp. We believe that there is a distinction in Scripture between Israel and the church. They're not one and the same. They're in the same people of God, but there are distinctions between them such that promises were given to Israel are not for the church and vice versa. So that puts us into the camp of dispensational futurists. And I wear that coat fine, okay? I don't believe all the things that dispensationalism teaches, but I believe some of them. And the two main ones are we're futurists concerning Matthew 24 and Revelation, and that we believe there's a distinction between Israel and the church. And I just want you to know these things because that's what I'm going to teach. That's going to be my perspective. I'm not going to deviate from that. I'll bring up what the other views believe, like I have this morning, but I'm not going to condemn them. I'm never going to denigrate them, but I'm going to explain to you how what you believe about certain passages guides you in your eschatology, and you can't get around it. Okay, I'm not trying to convince you to believe like I believe. What we're going to do is walk through the Scriptures and see what does the Scripture teach. Straightforwardly, literally, what does it teach? I would be the first to say there's imagery all through the Scripture. We'll see that in Daniel in colors. Okay, but that doesn't mean that it has to be something that's incomprehensible. So what, just, they, go ahead. what they say about the 144,000, the 12,000, 12 Jews, the two witnesses, the remnant that's got going through the... What they say about that? All those things have already happened. Oh. All of those things are historical. All of those things happen to... You know, the um, all the things that Christ says will happen, the last trumpet, him coming, from, and the people gathered from the four corners of the earth, all of that, everything... All the way up to Revelation 20, verse 7 has already happened. It happened in 70 AD. That's the view. The view is called preterist. You can go and look it up on the website or buy a book or read those who teach that. And I'm not making any of this up. You know, there there are preterists who are true believers, but they hold to that. There are people who call them Part, call themselves partial preterists, meaning they believe part of it and don't believe the other part. That would be R.C. Sproul was in that camp. He would call himself a partial preterist. All right. Then there's a thing called hyperpreterism, which is not true believers. They've gone to the extreme and everything, and those people deny everything that you and I would believe in. Who is that? 
Just call them hyperfreighters. But is there a denomination that? No. No. There are individuals, mainly, who go to that extreme. Go ahead. David, the, the covenantalists, and you know, when you get into the eschatology about preterism and all that, they're taking theological concepts about kingdom of God as heavenly right. and not earthly. And right. so they purposely draw that distinction. So they take that and then they put that over the scripture. That's right. And that's why they interpret that way, because it's, it, it, it's heavenly. Um, so that's why all these, these earthly things are not going to happen because they're already you know, fulfilled it even in the past or in some of the ways. The kingdom, that's, why the, that's why they say it's getting better because the gospel is spreading in the hearts of the church right. and going through all the nations. And that way it's getting better. It's getting better. Right. Um, in that sense, it's heavenly. It's, it's, it's Christ is ready to our hearts. Getting better in the, in the sense that the kingdom of God is spreading. Right. But somewhere, somewhere, I mean, because they do believe that Christ is, there's a second coming of Christ. Right. 70 AD was the second coming of Christ. There's another coming of Christ that has to fulfill the end of Revelation. Because that clearly has not happened. The great judgment hasn't happened. We're still here alive on this earth. And this earth is done away with. There's no longer place found for it, is the way the scriptures would say that. There's a new heaven and a new earth. There's a new Jerusalem. That clearly, they would not say that has not happened. So there has to be a time in which Christ comes back. A third time. A third time. But Jesus said he would not come back until the end. I understand. So where they fit in a second coming that isn't the last coming. Good question. <laughs> I mean, you can go read it just like I can. Yeah, I, I okay? can try. I'm not going to try to defend their arguments, okay? But I'm telling you, most of the Christian world believes that. We who are futurists dispensationalists are a small, small, small minority of true believers, and we're getting smaller. Okay, we're not getting bigger. And so we stand somewhat in opposition to most of Christianity. True believers I'm talking about, the true church. Most of them do not believe that I'm speaking to you this morning. They believe covenant theology they believe in preterism. That's what they believe. And again, I'm not going to condemn them, but I'm not going to take that perspective. You can see the perspective I'm going to take. You can download our doctrinal statement, and I will be in tow with it because that section I wrote. <laughs> Can you name some other denominations that believe in it? You said the Presbyterians. All the Presbyterians are um, believe in covenant theology. The church in places the nation of Israel. Some of their key doctrine. That's why if you're a Presbyterian, if you grew up Presbyterian, you were sprinkled when you were a baby, right? To put you into the kingdom of God. Now, they don't believe that's effective for salvation. I'll be the first to say, well, some of them do, um, some of them don't. But that protects you and puts you into the kingdom of God. Don't understand all of that. I have a dear friend, my best friend in college, who is Presbyterian. He wasn't, he is now. And he's an elder in the Presbyterian church, and he can't explain it to me. So, I mean, I love him greatly, and we just did which is okay. I'm all right with that. Good. I think one of the 
fascinating thing is when you reject something, you can find all kinds of supporting arguments to reject it, as you've seen. But I just, it's amazing for me to think about the fact that during the millennial reign of our Lord, the Feast of the Tabernacles yeah. and the sacrifice are all clearly spoken of in Zechariah. I mean, they are. So in order to have the Feast of the Tabernacles and that sacrifice resumed, what do you have? Right. You have the, the temple. I mean, the, the, it is in full back into a, a brand new operation with the Lord reigning. That is just an amazing picture that is so Jewish at its core. Right. It's amazing. It's beautiful. If you ever study the Feast of the Tabernacles, I can't wait. But, but it's just amazing. We did a little bit when we were doing John. <laughs> Not a whole lot. There, um, now, if you go the way we're going, then for the abomination of desolation to be true, what has to be in play? It has to be a temple. Has to be a temple. Yeah. Yeah. Has to be sacrifices. All right, now, if you're a Jew, where is the temple going to be? Temple Mount. Temple Mount in yeah. Jerusalem. What's there today? There's an Israel mosque. Yes. So something's got to change, right? Yeah, it's got to And who's going to do that? Probably a bomb. I'll just give you a foretaste. Who do I think is going to do that? The Antichrist. Yeah. Because he's the one that brings everybody together. That's why I said that. There's going to be a missile come in, blow it up. He's going to come in with his treaty of peace. Yeah, he's a good guy to start with, right? Yeah. How are they going to get around the uh, the ashes thing? In order to get the... Who says they won't fight? So they are out there. I don't know. Yeah, they've already found the red pepper. They found it last year, yeah. Yeah, and there's a guy named Bendel Jones. You know who... What follows after Vendel Jones? Indiana Jones. That's where they got the movies from. A guy named Vendel Jones who's been searching, has found the marble floors, he's found all kinds of stuff out in the, in the Israeli deserts. And who knows if they'll you know, find what they need, all the utensils and all of that? They have to. They already Yeah, they found some of them. Yeah, they did. So there's more being found, and there will be more found. But I'm serious when I say that Indiana Jones and all of those follow after a guy named Vendel Jones. That's where they got the, the idea from. It was from a, a man named Vendel Jones. And that goes way back, right? That goes back 20, 30 years, 30 years, maybe a little more. So that's where the idea of Indiana Jones came from. There's a guy named Vendel Jones who's out there. He's an archaeologist. His wife is Jewish. He's not who's looking for these things and has found a good bit. So there's got to be a temple and there's got to be sacrifices that the Jewish people are doing in order for the abomination of desolation to take place. And so it will. And that abomination of desolation, I believe, is at the three and a half year point of tribulation when the Antichrist shows his true colors and decimates the Jews and their sacrificial system. That's when Christ said, run for the hills. So I believe that'll happen. Those who have different eschatology believe that happened in 70 AD when they ran for the hill of Masada. And so, you know, there's 
You have to decide what you're going to go with, right? And you don't have to make that up today, right? There's a lot of time. But ultimately, you have to make decisions about these things. And I've made decisions for myself. I'm not going to try and make them for you. I will show you why I've made decisions that I've made. But all of that's in my mind as we walk through Daniel. Because Daniel will look at these things. Especially in uh, Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel will look at these things and speak to them directly. Um, I've heard a lot that the the treaty, the treaty uh, that will, I guess, bring peace to Israel and bring peace to Jerusalem is sort of like, you know, and I don't know, I know that we're not supposed to know the time and we don't know all the signs, but that's kind of held up as the big turning point. Is that something that is... Yeah, and I believe that's at the very end. I believe that's you're in the tribulation when that happens. Is what I believe. And you know, and you got to remember the horses at the beginning of Revelation that where you have forty percent of the world, where you have twenty five percent who die, and then you have another twenty five percent of those who die. So you're somewhere around forty percent of the world die in the very beginning of the tribulation because there's pestilence, there's famine. There's, you know, there's all kinds of bad stuff that is not that's natural in the world it's not supernatural it's just natural because there's no food for people there's all kinds of disease there's um, am- animals running wild there's just there's a lot of bad stuff at the beginning of Revelation and so 40% of the world is just dies and so today that would be something like uh, almost 3 billion people Lose their life? There's things like what, six and a half, seven billion people in the world? Yeah, so something like that. And, you know, this many of this is, are Christian. The vast majority are not. Maybe, maybe 2%, maybe just 1% are true believers. So it's a small sliver. And then you take us who are an even smaller sliver, right? Because of our eschatology. Yeah. I was going to just see if uh, I could be clarified on one issue. I think I may have misunderstood when you were asking a question back over in Romans 11. Were you asking something about uh, when Israel will be coming in? When When it says all all Jews will be saved. All Israel. Is that when Christ returns? But his court, he pours out his supplication on them. I know in Zechariah, like those verses in yeah. 12 and 14. Yeah, where I believe that is, I believe it's at the middle of the tribulation. Because then they're hidden. Wings of the eagle, right? Hidden in the desert for a time. I believe they're all true believers at that point. One of them died at that point. Yeah, they well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's one out of every three, probably. Well, I mean, you could debate that also. Yeah. And they say they see his nail-scarred hands where he appears, yeah. and then they leave him as if for an only child. Is that not when he returns and they see? I think it's before. I think it's before. <coughs> I think it's at the middle. <coughs> so, I could be wrong. Okay. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Maybe there is no rapture. <laughs> <laughs> I can make arguments both ways, by the way, for the rapture or not for the rapture. I mean, that's what you, you need to understand what the other arguments are, so that you can make them as well as they can. So then you know how to not make them, right? So anyway, I could, you know, 
The covenant with Abraham's the, um, covenant with the Jews. Yeah, with Abraham. Well, um, with see, so there's multiple covenants, right? Yes. So the one we're talking about at the end times is the Abrahamic covenant. Does that cover anyone who has Jewish blood, or is it only Jews who are practicing Jews? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Judah. Right? Because all the others are gone. God protected them. So there's the lot. So that's who we're talking about. But they, even if today those descendants are not practicing Jews, are they still under the covenant? Or? One out of three are saved. The other two thirds die. So, so it's not very that many of them. It's not that many. Never has been that many of them. I mean, you get to, you know, the people didn't die in the desert because they were bad people. They died in the desert because they were unbelievers. That'll change your view, right? You mean there was only a couple of guys? Yeah, there were only a couple of guys who were true believers. The rest of them were unbelievers. They died. They did not enter the rest of God. Go to Hebrews and understand what that means. They died in their sins. So, I mean, my view is different. I will just tell you. And there are reasons why I teach what I do. And so I will explain that. I won't, and feel free to ask a question. And I go to one of those kind of places. It's like, how do you say that? Well, I have reasons. I don't just believe something because I, I, I figured it out and I've got all the keys or I found the, the mysterious keys of scripture which some would claim. Not at all. Not at all. But I have reasons for what I believe. And I could be wrong on some of these things. I could be. Okay, I'm willing for that to be true. So, are you? And are you the other side? Are you willing to be wrong? Because we don't have it all figured out. But we have reasons for what we do believe. And that's the real question. Do you have a reason for what you believe? Can you defend it with Scripture? That's what we're trying to do. That's why we're walking through this. Go ahead. You know how the church always tells us to look back at the history of the church. Yeah. So, so, that has kind of been a history of the church. The history of the church? The true church? Well, if you go to the Reformers, it's all the way to the Reformers, right? Covenant. Almost all of the reformers covenant theology. They met, they didn't touch on the issues of revelation. Unfortunately, they didn't get that far. They had enough issues to deal with as they just tried to reform the church. Okay, and they never got to it. But they were covenantal. I would never deny that. They were. They were solid on the rest of it, though. <laughs> they were solid on most of it. And I would never say, I would never condemn them, I would never deny their true, true belief. I wouldn't do that. Because there's too many people who are good, solid, true believers who glorify God daily who believe that kind of theology. And I'm okay with that. And you have to get to that point. I'm not going to debate with them. But I'm going to teach what I believe is true out of the scriptures. Isn't it possible that the the reason that historically the church came to be covenantalism is because around the third century B, I mean third century AD or whatever, the the Christian church, if you will, which was becoming the Catholic Church, um, started turning on the Jews themselves. Like they they saw the Jews as guilty of Christ's blood, so the Jews became enemies rather than seen as God's people. I mean, so I think 
and then that was taught by the Catholic Church for you know a millennium. Yes. So I mean, that's the historical basis. There are reasons, you know. And this, if you really want to go and read some stuff interesting, go read about the Crusades and why the Crusades happened, and you'll realize it was all ungodly. I mean, it was. I mean, it's just it's, just go read the. I mean, if you haven't ever studied it, go read about the Crusades and what kicked them off and why did they happen and who led them out of Europe. Then you you'll go oh, There's nothing there about Tripoli because there wasn't. So, I have, like I said, I have a little different take on some things, and I'm getting ready to tell you one. <laughs> Let's talk about the major theme of. The book of Daniel. There has to be a theme, right? There has to be a reason why Daniel wrote this book. You read through the pages, you'll see that Nebuchadnezzar has two dreams, visions, that Daniel interprets. You have the writing on the wall to Nebuchadnezzar's probably <coughs> relative, not son. Um, and Daniel interprets that. Then Daniel himself has three visions that are interpreted. And then you have the prophecy by Gabriel that's given to Daniel uh, as a result of his prayers. And so there's a lot of stuff that happens that, thankfully, most of it is interpreted for us in the book of Daniel. Daniel, either Daniel or the angels or someone gives uh, the interpretation of the prophecies. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So we'll, we'll take everything we can get out of this. All right? But there, there has to be a theme running through the book. And there has to be a major reason why the book was written. And I'm, think about the times in which Daniel lived. And why did that happen? And what do you suppose is the major theme of Daniel? God's totally in control. And he's using a variety of different instruments in ways we can't really comprehend. I mean... Just look at what you just said about the end time, where you have a remnant of Israel being preserved by God, and at the same time, Jesus at the end of that, or middle of that Matthew 24 passage says, because you will call on my name, you will be slaughtered. So right there you have this, if you're not careful, this incongruence that doesn't line up, and those are two different peoples enduring two incredibly different things during that reign. And we can't get our heads around it, but God's clear about it. But he is. He is. And the major theme of Daniel is given in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. This is the major theme of Daniel. And then we get it on the head. Daniel 2, chapter, sorry, chapter 2, verse 20. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. So what does he say is true about God and his creation? It is he who determines the times and the epochs. And if you have an ESV, it would say seasons, right? That word refers to things that are fixed. They will happen as they have been ordained to happen. They are fixed in time, they're fixed in event, they will take place as God has ordained them. He is the one who fixes the times and the epics. And then the other one says he does what? He removes 
He removes kings and establishes kings. And we saw that, right? As we looked at the Pharaoh, we looked at Nebuchadnezzar coming in, setting up a vassal king, the, the Pharaoh trying to get that vassal king to do what he wanted him to do. You see these men buying, but the king promises. You remember this last week, right? Look over in 2 Kings chapter 24. And you'll, you'll remember these things as we look at them again. I think that's the right place. I could be wrong. Maybe it's 26. It's the last chapter. Yes, yeah, All right, so look at verse 3. You know, this is talking about the destruction of the king of Israel, another king being established, and all of that. Verse 3 of chapter 24 of 2 Kings. 2 Kings 24 3. Surely at the command of the Lord it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of all the sins of Manasseh. That was their king about four back. According to all that he had done and for the innocent blood and all that. This king, why? How was it that the southern kingdom was overtaken by the Babylonians? The command of the Lord. Was Nebuchadnezzar a good guy? No. Was his son a good guy? No. No. They were evil in the sight of God. But he used even evil men to accomplish what he wanted to in the history of Judah. God establishes kings and he removes kings. You know, the first part, I don't think we have much trouble with, right? God has ordained certain things to happen. He's in control of the epics and the times. He's, uh, he's set the course of the world. All those kind of things. We're okay with all that, right? That's not a problem. There are some who would have a problem with that, but not most true believers. They would say, yeah, God is sovereign over his creation in that global sense. Now, he establishes kings and he removes kings. Is that true? Yes. So all those kings who ruled over um, the northern kingdom who were evil in God's sight, he established their own, their thrones. He established the throne of Manasseh who is the reason why he destroys Judah with the Babylonians? He established that? That's what it says, right? Think about our world. Think about some of the leaders in our world. They've been appointed and established by God? You believe that? That's what the scriptures teach, right? I mean, even those bad guys... Who rattle, you know, who rattle their sabers and shoot up missiles and uh, threaten people and take innocent lives and uh, kill their own people and established by God? Really? Yeah. It's a hard truth. And why is it that he establishes some of those things? To work his will. To work his plan. Good. I was actually just reading in Isaiah 45 the other day. Just happened to me. I just opened it up. Okay. And uh, this is fast forwarding, but I, I just kind of along those lines, this is what struck me. It said, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, you know, yeah. me, yeah. his anointed. Right. Uh, that, wow. Right. That, that really struck me that he would have anointed this pagan to do what he wanted and said, Who Don't blessed Israel, by the way. 
He yeah. sent them back to their land, gave them the supplies to go back to their land, this pagan mm-hmm. king <coughs> of, the, of the Medo-Persian brand who came <coughs> after the Babylonians. You know, along these lines, I, and I was thinking of uh, Isaiah 46. Nine through eleven. It says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And talking about the kings and all, he says, Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. And if you fast forward to the end of Revelation where you have the ten kings and the little king and they give their assent to the little king, it says that God put it in their minds to do so. Free will of men? We can talk about that for a while, right? You know, and... And I believe the apostles understood and agreed with this teaching. Look over in Romans 13. Hard teaching. We've been here before, right? We've been here before. This is really tough. Romans 13. First three verses. Romans 13, 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. We talked about what that could mean. Several different things. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Resist the authorities. He was talking about either Caligula or Nero. Well, yeah, bad guys. Really bad guys. Who would later execute the man who wrote this. Right? Cut his head off. Crucify Peter upside down at the same time. Massacre many of the Christians. That's who he's writing about. And God established their reign. And they were to be subject to it. Up until what point? until they make you sin. And then you obey God rather than men, right? These governing authorities, are they are they only those in, in office or would that include my boss? Your boss? <laughs> there are other places in the <laughs> <laughs> If you have a master who is evil or good, you do what he says. Right? You may not hear. We could just go a couple of chapters back, and he would say that. That even an evil taskmaster, you do what he says. Unto the Lord. Of course, you always have, in employment, you always have the choice of removing yourself from that authority. You do in the United States. There's a lot of things where you don't have that freedom. Right? So, I mean, this becomes difficult. This hits home. What do you believe about the nations around the world and why they're established? What about those guys, the big bear over to the uh, 
you know, the Far East who's, uh, who's doing some things that we would not approve of, right? Destroying some people, wiping out people. Same thing happening in the Middle East where you've got anarchy, basically, and people having to flee from their homes and many of them losing their lives. You've got the people um, who our pastor used to fellowship with and teach with who were slaughtered by those same people. I mean, really? God's in control of what's happening? Absolutely. Orchestrating. He's orchestrating it. He's establishing those kings. He will ultimately establish all that at the end times to accomplish his purpose. So that it will be so desperate that unless God does something, it's hopeless. And he will do something. And it'll be miraculous. And the peoples of the earth will worship him for it. Whether they believe or not, they will do homage to him. Well, a lot of time he does that because of his people, when he does destruct them, because if they've gone the wrong way, sure. they, sh- they he worships uh, other gods. God has to do it for his name's sake, he says. He says, if I had my chance, I would destroy you, but I can't because I made a covenant with you. He says, that's the only reason. He keeps a remnant. He goes through. A lot of people die, but he keeps a remnant. And I think that's the same thing that's happening here and because the church is not shining the light. And it's, it's just like a picture of Lot. Lot was righteous, but he was like, he was not shining the light in that area. Did you see church replaced Israel? Really? You believe that? No. You see, it, it plays into your worldview. It plays into everything you think about what's going on. All of that, what you believe about eschatology, greatly influences your day-to-day thoughts and life. That's why we teach it. We don't teach it so that you know what the future is. That's not it at all. It's so that it'll impact you where you live today, and you'll think rightly. Good. Okay, I'm going to confuse us some more with free will. I'll send you to Erasmus and Luther. Read their arguments back and forth to one another. And Erasmus is about this big. Luther's is about this big. And Luther says, free will of men? Not so much. Well, how come it says um, they did what was right in their own eyes sure. and he let them go? Sure. Sure. Does that give up? I mean, it's so complicated. I know that there's... The potter can make vessels of honor and dishonor out of the same lump of clay, right? Mm-hmm. He made those for dishonor. He made others for honor. He's in control. argue that God is a capricious God yeah. and has evil in him. Yeah, and there's no evil in God. He is always, every way, good and righteous. <coughs> well, I think MacArthur gives us a good... Who's that? MacArthur. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> He's presenting what God's word presents. Man has a free will. Yeah. Free will that man, the laws man has, is to choose and pick his own sin. Right. He has absolutely no will as it relates to knowing God. Right. Apart from grace. Right. Good way to think about it, right? Men have free will to choose their sins, but not to choose salvation or anything right. of God. They have no capacity to do that. Right. Born in the sin. Right? None righteous are good. None who seek God. Good. I think the issue with that men have with the idea of God controlling kings is that when you look at kings that are wicked, um, which we could argue that all kings are wicked, but all men are wicked, um, that they do. There's a loss of innocent life, 
But I think the thing that you have to keep the big picture in your mind is that all men, every last one of us, men, women, children, deserve death because of our sin. And as a result of that, we are all going to die in some way. And you can't escape that. So God is not being capricious or evil or anything when men die. Because that is a judgment that he has already ordained at the very beginning of creation. When all that sins, it'll die. So God is not being unjust to allow wickedness like Manasseh to occur and for innocence to die. His his already will is being accomplished in that. Um, you know how you you know whether I die of heart disease or I die of you know being destroyed for my faith. It doesn't matter. I'm still under the penalty of sin because of of the wickedness. But for believers, we that is the first death, but we don't die the second death, and that's the difference. That God is is righteous and holy and loving is that He does not give us what we truly deserve if He saves us from our sin. Is this the way you think? Is this the way you think about the world and the, thing, the events that are happening? Is the, are, are you biblically minded? Does the scripture guide your thinking about what's going on in the world today? It needs to. It should. If it doesn't, then change your way of thinking. Study the scripture. Be, be turned into right thinking by the, by the teaching of the scripture. And you'll think differently than all the people around you. Because they don't think this way. At all. Good. Neil? I was just going to say, uh, we, it's ironic to me that we, we struggle with the difficulty of some of these passages at times about you know, God strengthening and giving power to kings to rulers who abuse that authority. Um, but I'm just grateful that we've been given this insight because yeah. I can't imagine looking around I can't imagine looking around the world and seeing what I see today uh, and not having been told that God is, is in control of all this. That would be hopeless. It is, and it is for many, right? It's, it's absolute disparity and helplessness. So, so uh, I see an irony there. Um, that, that is why I believe I put in my heart to go to these passages and let's teach today and then see where it takes us. It's so that we will think rightly. We won't be guided by the headlines and the screams and the... Uh, even the, the things that our nation will endeavor to do in the course of it all, that will be guided by biblical thinking. Because that's what we need. That will be our, our hope and our security. Because it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. Okay? And you see that every day. Good. Sure. Um, Matthew 10, 28. You do not fear those who kill the body that are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body. Yeah, don't fear him, right? Yeah. Although you may lose your life for that. Be sure. There are many, many today who are losing their life. Sorry. Go ahead. i tell you what, one thing that I'm struggling with um, personally in all this is 
as we come to grasp the whole idea of being in, being subject to governing authorities as Christians, and um, not to not to go against it unless they're asking you to do something that's against God's God's will, God's plan. How how do we respond politically? How do we respond with our foreign policy? How do we how would I how would what would have been the right biblical response to um, MLK? And you know those things like you know I, I could totally see getting behind somebody like William Wilberforce, but what about what we've done in, not only in our country where some good has come about because of these demonstrations that were against the law, right. or and yet if we were a Christian and we were following this, would we have been free to participate in that? Good question. That if you were alive in revolutionary times, would you have been free to fight against the English? Something you ought to think about. How does that play out, though, also in our foreign policy dealing with people like with, with ISIS and with sure. the recent death of King Abdullah and, um, you know, well, the, what's going on in Yemen? You know, and, and the scripture does say the government bears the sword for a reason. So the, the government bears a sword for a reason, not just for its own people, but for other evil people too. So, so how do you how do you use that and still be in subjection? I mean, it's, it's not it's not simple. It's not simple, and you really want to think about it and what you believe and what can you do because you never know. You have to think about these things and be guided by the spirit in your heart. You have to have to be saturated with the scriptures to make right judgments. That's why we're walking through this. It's not simple, I'm telling you, it's not. And the more you think about it, the more difficult it becomes. And so think about it. And be, you know, be upset. Struggle with it. And ask the Lord for wisdom. That's what we're going to do all through this. Now, I have the first seven verses written on my paper. How'd <laughs> that work out for you? <laughs> soapboxes to stand on today. Or really, next time, we'll actually look at the opening verses. We're done with everything I wanted to do before we look at the opening verses. So you understand the theme now. Keep that in mind as we walk through all of this. Thanks for your time.